0: Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. A quick note for those who listened to the previous episode when it first aired. Dan Carlin, of Hardcore History, has been awesome and generous enough to donate his voice as Auror Captain Brodsky. If you would like to hear him in action, I have updated the old version of chapter 99 and 100A with a new mp3. Second half of chapter 100. Precautionary Measures, part 1. The blurring, seething, unrecognizable darkness seemed to turn to regard them. A hiss came from it, like the hiss of the deadliest snake which ever had existed. Something more dangerous by far than any blue crate. Then it bent back over the wound in the unicorn and continued to drink. The mirror was in Draco's hand, and it remained lifeless as his finger mechanically tapped at the surface, over and over. Tracy was holding her wand now, saying things like Prismatis! And Stupefy! But nothing was happening. Then the seething outline rose up, like a man rising to his feet, only not so. And it seemed to scuttle forward, moving with a strange half-jump across the dying unicorn's legs, approaching the two of them. Tracy tugged at his sleeve and then turned to run. Run from something that could hunt down unicorns. Before she could take three steps, there came another terrible hiss, burning his ears, and Tracy fell to the ground and did not move. Somewhere in the back of his mind, Draco knew that he was about to die. Even if the aura checked his mirror this very instant, there was no way anyone could get here fast enough. There was no time. Running hadn't worked. Magic hadn't worked. The seething outline came closer while Draco tried, in his last moments, to solve the riddle. Then a blazing silver ball of light plunged out of the night sky and hung there, illuminating the forest as bright as daylight, and the seething outline leapt backwards, as though in horror of the light. Four broomsticks plunged out of the sky, three Aurors with bright multicolored shields, and Harry Potter holding his wand aloft, seated behind Professor McGonagall within a larger shield. Get out of here! roared Professor McGonagall. An instant before the seething thing gave forth another terrible hiss, and all the shielding spells winked out. The three Aurors and Professor McGonagall fell off their broomsticks and dropped heavily to the forest floor, lying motionless. Draco couldn't breathe, the most intense fear he'd ever felt in his life gripping all through his chest, sending tendrils around his heart. Harry Potter, who had remained untouched, silently guided his broomstick toward the ground and then leapt off to stand between Draco and the seething outline, interposing himself like a living shield. Run, "Run," said Harry Potter, turning his head half-back to look at Draco. The silver moonlight gleamed on his face. Run, Draco! I'll hold it off! You can't fight that thing alone, Draco cried aloud. A nausea was in his stomach. A churning sensation that, looking back in memory, seemed both like and unlike a sense of guilt, as though it had the sensations, but not quite all of the emotion. I must, Harry Potter said grimly. Go! Harry, I... I'm sorry for everything. I... Though later, looking back, Draco couldn't quite remember what he'd meant to apologize for. Maybe it had been that he was planning to overthrow Harry's conspiracy all that time ago. The seething figure, now seeming blacker and more terrible, rose up into the air, hovering off the ground. Go! Draco turned and fled headlong into the woods with the branches whipping at his face. Behind him, Draco heard another terrible hiss, and Harry's voice rising, crying something that Draco couldn't make out from the distance. Draco turned his head for only an instant to look back, and in that moment ran into something, hitting his head hard and blacked out. Harry held a tight grip on his wand, a prismatic sphere glowing around him. He stared levelly at the seething, blurring form in front of him, and said, What on earth are you doing? The seething blurs resolved, reformed, relaxed back into a hooded form. Whatever concealment had been at work, a device rather than a charm, Harry guessed, since the magic had been able to affect him, had prevented his mind from recognizing the shape, or even that the shape was human, but it hadn't prevented Harry from recognizing the sharp sense of doom. Professor Quirrell stood straight with silver blood all down the front of his enshrouding black cloak, and gave a sigh, looking at the fallen forms of three Aurors, Tracy Davis, Draco Malfoy, and Professor McGonagall. I had honestly thought that I jammed that mirror without alarm. What were two first-year Slytherins doing alone in the Forbidden Forest? Mr. Malfoy has more sense than this. What a fiasco. Harry didn't answer. The sense of doom was as strong as Harry could ever remember feeling it. A feeling of power in the air so great that it was almost tangible. Some part of him was still viscerally shocked at how fast the shield surrounding the Aurors had been torn apart. He almost hadn't been able to see the successive lashes of color which had torn away the shields like tissue paper. It made the duel Professor Quirrell had fought against the Auror in Azkaban look like a mockery, a child's game. Though Professor Quirrell had claimed, then, that if he'd fought for real, the Auror would have been dead in seconds. And Harry knew now that this was also true. Just how high did the power ladder go? I take it, Harry said, managing to keep his voice steady, that your eating unicorns has something to do with why you'll get fired from the Defense Professor position. I don't suppose you'd care to explain in considerable detail? Professor Quirrell looked at him. The almost tangible sense of power in the air seemed to diminish, drawing back into the defense professor. I shall indeed explain myself. I need to cast a few memory charms first, and then we may go off and discuss it, for it would not be wise for me to stay. You will return to this time later, as I know. Harry willed himself to be able to see through the cloak he had mastered and knew that another Harry stood beside him, hidden by his own deathly hallow. Harry then told his cloak to hide himself from himself once more, and it did. Being able to perceive your future self meant having to match the memory later. Harry's own voice said, then, sounding strange in present Harry's ears, He has a surprisingly good explanation. Present Harry remembered the words as best he could. Nothing more was said between them. Professor Quirrell walked to Draco Malfoy's form and chanted the spell of the false memory charm. The defense professor stood there for perhaps a minute, seemingly lost to the world. Harry had been studying memory charms these last couple of weeks, though he couldn't have helped cast the spells unless he was willing to exhaust himself almost completely, and, for some reason, they wanted an order to lose every single life memory involving the color blue but Harry had some idea now of the concentration which the far more difficult false memory charm entailed. You had to try to live the other person's entire life inside your own head, at least if you wanted to create the false memory charms with less than a 16 to 1 slowdown as you separately crafted 16 major tracks of memory. It might have been quiet, there might have been no outward sign, but Harry knew something of the difficulties now, and he knew to be impressed. Professor Quirrell finished and moved on to Tracy Davis, then the Three Aurors, and finally Professor McGonagall. Harry waited, but future Harry made no protest. It was possible that even Professor McGonagall, if she'd been awake, wouldn't have protested. It was not yet the Ides of May, and apparently there would be a surprisingly good explanation. With a gesture, Draco's stunned body was lifted and sent a short distance into the woods, before being carefully deposited on the ground. Then a final gesture from Professor Quirrell ripped a huge chunk out of the unicorn's side, leaving behind ragged edges. The raw meat hovered in the air, then wavered in vanishment and was gone. Done. I must depart this place now, Mr. Potter. Come with me and remain here. Professor Quirrell strode away, and Harry followed and remained behind. They walked through the woods in silence for a time, before Harry heard faint voices in the distance. The next set of Aurors, presumably, after the first set had fallen out of contact. What his future self was saying, Harry didn't know. They won't detect us, nor hear our speech. The sense of power and doom around the defense professor was still strong. The man seated himself on a tree stump, one where the light of the almost full moon fell full on him. I should first say that when you speak to the Aurors in the future, you should tell them that you frightened away the seething dark, the same as you did that Dementor. It is what Mr. Malfoy will remember seeing. (sighs) It may cause some alarm if they conclude that some horror kin to Dementors, and strong enough to break the Auror's shields, is loose in the Forbidden Forest. But I could not think of what else to do. If the forest is better guarded after this... But with any luck, I have already consumed what I need. Would you mind telling me how you arrived so quickly? How did you know Mr. Malfoy was in trouble? After Captain Brodsky had learned that Draco Malfoy was in the Forbidden Forest, seemingly in the company of Rubius Hagrid, Brodsky had begun inquiring to find out who had authorized this, and had still been unable to find out when Draco Malfoy had missed check-in. Despite Harry's protests, the Aura Captain, who was authorized to know about time-turners, had refused to allow deployment to before the time of the missed check-in. There were standard procedures involving time but Brodsky had given Harry written orders allowing him to go back and deploy an Auror trio to arrive one second after the missed check-in time. There had been a Patronus charm to locate Draco, which Harry had successfully willed to take the form of a ball of pure silver light, and the flight of Aurors had arrived on time to the second. I'm afraid I couldn't say, Harry replied evenly. Professor Quirrell was still a major suspect, and it was good for him not to know the details. Now, why are you eating unicorns? Ah, as to that, the man hesitated. I was drinking the blood of unicorns, not eating them. The missing flesh, the ragged marks upon the body, those were to obscure the case, to make it seem like some other predator. The use of unicorn's blood is too well known. I don't know it. I know you do not, or you would not be pestering me about it. The power of unicorn's blood is to preserve your life for a time, even if you are on the very verge of death. There was a stretch of time when Harry's brain claimed to be refusing to process the words, which was, of course, a lie, because you couldn't know the meaning you weren't allowed to process without having already processed it. A strange sense of blankness overtook Harry, an absence of reaction. Maybe this was what other people felt like when someone went off script, and they couldn't say or think of anything to do. Of course Professor Quirrell was dying, not just occasionally ill. Professor Quirrell had known he was dying. He'd volunteered to take the defense professor position at Hogwarts, after all. Of course he'd been getting worse the whole school year. Of course illnesses which kept getting worse had a predictable destination at their end. Harry's brain had surely known already, somewhere in the safe back of his mind where he could refuse to process things he'd already processed. Of course that was why Professor Quirrell wouldn't be able to teach battle magic next year. Professor McGonagall wouldn't even have to fire him, He would just be... dead. No. There has to be a way. I am not stupid, nor particularly eager to die. I have already looked. I had to go this far simply to last out my lesson plans, having less time than I had thought. And... The head of the dark, moonlit figure turned away. I think I do not want to hear about it, Mr. Potter. Harry's breath hitched. Too many emotions were bubbling up in him at once. After denial came anger, according to a ritual someone had just made up. And yet, it seemed surprisingly appropriate. And why... why isn't unicorn blood standard in healer's kits, then? To keep someone alive, even if they're on the very verge of dying from their legs being eaten! Because there are permanent side effects. Side effects? Side effects? What kind of side effect is medically worse than death? Not everyone thinks the same way we do, Mr. Potter. Though, to be fair, the blood must come from a live unicorn, and the unicorn must die in the drinking. Would I be here otherwise? Harry turned, stared at the surrounding trees. Have a herd of unicorns at St. Mungo's. Flew the patients there, or use port keys. Yes, that would work. Harry's face tightened, the only outward sign behind his trembling hands of everything that was welling up inside him. He needed to scream, needed some outlet, needed something he couldn't name, And finally, Harry leveled his wand at a tree and shouted, Defendo! There was a sharp tearing sound, and a cut appeared across the wood. Defendo! Another cut. Harry had learned the charm only ten days previously, after he'd started getting serious about self-defense. It was theoretically a second-year charm, but the anger pouring through him seemed to know no bounds. He knew enough now not to exhaust himself, and he still had power yet. Defendo! Harry had aimed at a branch this time, and it plummeted to the ground with a sound of twigs and leaves. There didn't seem to be any tears inside him, only pressure with no outlet. I shall leave you to it. The defense professor rose from his tree stump, the unicorn's blood still moonlit on the black cloak he wore, and drew his hood back over his head. Defendo! 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 End Chapter 100 Thank you to the following people. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden Casey Davis was voiced by Lucky. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Background music provided by freestockmusic.com. The music used is Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Chapter 101, Precautionary Measures, Part 2.